Among the many incredible excerpts to be found in Dr. Musgrove's book, I thought this one would start us off well. The Chevy Chase Land Company actively protected its segregated exclusivity. In 1909, the company sued a developer who had sold homes to black families in a subdivision called Belmont near the intersection of Western and Wisconsin Avenues. It reacquired the land and chose to let it remain undeveloped for decades rather than allow black residents to live there. Even in the 21st century, relatively few black or poor people live in Chevy Chase. The area that would have become Belmont now houses Saks Fifth Avenue and other luxury stores. Healthy churches look like their neighborhood, but why does our neighborhood look the way it does is a question that we have to continue to ask ourselves. I'm so grateful, uh, Dr. Musgrove, that you could be with us today and share a little bit about this amazing book. Um, I like him even better than David McCullough. <laughs> um, so as much praise as I think I could give you. Um, but make sure your microphone's on. Um, push that down to get the green light. All right. And here we go. Everyone, welcome Dr. Musgrove. Well, thank you, Pastor Peltz, for the, uh, the introduction and for all of you for, for being here and for having me. Um, what I'll do really quickly is, is just tell you a, a, a quick bit about Chocolate City. I'll just take about uh, four minutes to do that. Uh, and then I'll get into my, my prepared remarks. Um, and you'll excuse me if I'm a little off in looking at folks. I'm, I'm still getting used to having glasses for the first time in my 43 years. Uh, and so I, I can sort of see you. But if I, if I put them on and I can see you, then I wouldn't be able to see uh, my notes. And so <laughs> choices have to be made. Um, <laughs> uh, so, so Chocolate City is, is a 400-year a, a exploration of race and democracy in Washington, D.C. And, and I, I want to be intentional about saying that it's an exploration of race and democracy because uh, we knew when we wrote it uh, that most of the major sweeping histories of, of race in the city had really been histories of African Americans in the city. And, and our book is very much that. It, it has to be when you talk about issues of race and democracy in D.C. But <clears throat> there are, of course, other racial groups in the city that, uh, whose stories really help us to understand the development of governance and democracy in the city. Uh, and so those of you who have picked it up know that the first chapter focuses on the Nacostan uh, and the Piscataway. This is, of course, the Native Americans uh, who dominated this region before uh, when John Smith came up the Potomac River in 1608 and was the first at least recorded uh, uh, European uh, to interact with them. <clears throat> And then we were very intentional as we moved through uh, the next couple of centuries uh, to include those groups of DC residents who are part of the story of race and democracy here, uh, who really get short shrift in the literature. Uh, and so that is uh, the Irish working class of the 19th century, uh, the African American working class of the late 19th century, where most people like to focus on the black elite. It's actually a great story. I understand why they do. Uh, but we wanted to make sure that we were also talking about the entire black community and in fact, the, the majority of the black community uh, during that time. Uh, and then on down through the, the Latino population of the post-World War II period, uh, the Chinese population of that same period as well. And you can see that we devote good space to, uh, to all of those along the way. Although with a project like this, you always have to leave someone out. And, and so as you're reading it and you say, well, they don't talk about, say, I'm sorry, it's probably in our notes somewhere where we had to cut it. Um, uh, we would, I would put, up, put together drafts of about 40 to 60,000 words. And my co-author, who's really the, the hatchet man of the group, 
uh, would, uh, would cut them down to the proper 20 to 25,000. Uh, and so an entire chapter's worth is usually on the cutting room floor for each chapter, at least that I wrote, because he's more efficient than I. Um, I, I should also point out that um, uh, this is very much Chris's neighborhood, my, my co-author Chris Myers-Ash. Uh, his mother lives quite literally a block and a half on the other side of your, your neighbor church uh, across the way. She's on Western Avenue. So uh, I feel like I could have crashed in Chris's, Chris's old room uh, with pictures like Michael Jackson and stuff on the wall and then just come over here very quickly if it had it snowed or something. Um, uh, our argument, quite simply, in the book is that race is a central fault line uh, in the history of the city, in the, in, of governance in the city, and in the history of uh, American democracy. Uh, and so that is sort of our, our one major takeaway. Uh, but we really wanted to just tell stories after that. And so we really do encourage you uh, to look through the book. There are other points that we make, uh, but we, I don't think we make them as forcefully as that one in the introduction or the conclusion, because we just like to get into who these people were and what they did on the streets of DC. Um, so let me get into my prepared remarks. And, and, and Pastor Peltz has asked me to speak on the topic of building bridges, and I, I do what I'm told. Uh, and so here we go. Um, and any questions you have about the larger book that I don't cover in the talk, please feel free to just bring them up during the uh, question and answer. Um, I prefer that part of the talk anyway. Um, so our theme uh, today is building bridges. And, and uh, I'm going to go ahead and dedicate my remarks to the topic of building bridges through struggle. Um, so the metaphor of building bridges uh, sort of summons images of people physically separated by a body of water perhaps stranded on different islands of thought or experience, perhaps neighborhoods separated by a river. Uh, and it's a really popular metaphor that Americans have uh, for dealing with issues of race and racial inequality. And while it is apt, I think it is incomplete. It underestimates, as far as I'm concerned, the depths of our separation and the difficulty of healing the wounds of our racial past. At the heart of this underestimation, I believe, is our misunderstanding of the nature and of the effects of segregation. And so what I'm going to do uh, from here is, is illustrate my point and where I think we should go uh, uh, from in the, in, the, the, um, uh, in the form of three different stories from the book. Um, <clears throat> and so let me begin with my first story on the topic, segregation is not simply separation, but to use ta Coates's word, plunder. In the first decade of the 20th century, the black community of Washington, D.C. was one of the largest and most prosperous in the nation. Uh, it was literally the largest in the 1890s, uh, larger than Baltimore, larger than New Orleans. Uh, we sometimes think of places like Chicago and Harlem as, as the large black urban communities. And of course, they were after the first great migration. But most of the black migration of the late 19th century was to southern cities. And then you had a migration from both those cities in the countryside to northern cities once industry opens up to African-Americans during World War I. And so Washington, D.C. gets a tremendous migration, particularly from the Carolinas, Virginia, and Maryland uh, in the late 19th century. And it, its population balloons to about 90,000 African-Americans uh, in the 1890s. It, it, it is overtaken, I believe, by Baltimore um, in the um, early 20th century, and then very quickly after that by Harlem and Chicago. <clears throat> um, but this, um, good Lord, where'd I go? Uh, the prosperity of the black community is one of the major things that, that brought people here. And this prosperity was due in the main uh, to the federal government. 
When Congress founded the DC schools uh, right after the Civil War, it mandated that the black system be funded at the exact same level as the white system. This means that black teachers got paid the same as white teachers. Uh, the amount of money allocated for uh, students in classroom was the same uh, across the races as well. Um, this was uh, very quickly uh, across the South completely and totally unprecedented, right? Uh, the moment the Reconstruction governments are overthrown uh, in the 18, late, some certain places, the 1860s, other the 1870s, uh, funding for black schools, if there was any at all in certain jurisdictions, uh, plummets. Uh, and so by the time you get to the turn of the century, when I'm talking about South Carolina, you'd have funding on the level of like five to one, eight to one uh, for uh, black to white uh, schools. And of course, in many Southern uh, states, you had no black high schools at all. Whereas at the turn of the century in Washington, D.C., you had Dunbar, which was easily the blast, best black high school. Uh, and, and in fact, it was, it was still M Street at the time. Easily the best black high school in the country and probably the best black high school in the city, black or white. Uh, largely because uh, African-Americans with MAs and PhDs couldn't get jobs most other places, and so they ended up teaching at a local high school. And they ended up teaching, teaching specifically this one because it was a great high school, right, where they got paid the same as a white teacher would across town. Added to this was the federal government supplied a good deal of funding for Howard University and Freedmen's Hospital, creating a cluster of black doctors and university professors in the city. Uh, Republicans continued to make patronage appointments of African-Americans, although less frequently under the lily-white republicanism of Theodore, um, Theo Roosevelt and uh, Howard Taft. And when Congress instituted a civil service exam in 1883, it administered it independent of race, allowing for a significant number of blacks to secure good-paying government white-collar jobs. Uh, you, you could get a good blue-collar job as an African-American in DC, like down at the, uh, the printing office, uh, but you could get a, a white-collar job as an African-American in DC as well, uh, which again is, is a really remarkable occurrence at this moment. Uh, in American history. About 400 African Americans had these white collar clerkships uh, around the turn of the century. <clears throat> Said differently, this small amount of non-discrimination allowed a large number of blacks to secure their own little slices of the American dream at a time when lynching was happening roughly at a, a, a rate of about twice per week across the entire South. Disfranchisement was hardening into law across the region and um, segregation was being erected across the region as well. And so DC becomes this odd island of black affluence because of the federal government almost entirely. Yet after Woodrow Wilson took office in March 1913, the Southern-born New Jerseyan instituted a policy of segregation in federal agencies. Patronage appointments of blacks all but ceased, and agency heads went out of their way to humiliate, demote, and dismiss ordinary black clerks. Wilson's reasoning was that building bridges caused racial tension. In a 1914 meeting with African-American activist William uh, Monroe Trotter, uh, he stated, we are all practical men. We know that there is a point at which there is apt to be friction, and that is the intercourse between the two races. And so as far as Wilson was concerned, better to separate them than to have them in contact and have friction. While his imposition of segregation reduced the interactions between blacks and whites, most blacks felt it most in their paychecks. A critical segment of the city's black middle class was demoted and impoverished. White residents of the city were impoverished as well, for they came to believe the lies that good government was white government, and that black people were poor because they were stupid, not because they had made them so. 
Let me tell you a second story uh, under the rough title. Um, segregation creates significantly different interests and needs among those who are subject to it. In the 1940s and 1950s, Washington desegregated far faster and earlier than its southern neighbors. It was a product, this, this process was a product of its unique relationship to Congress. I'm sure you all know that under Article I, Section 8 of the Constitution, Congress has ultimate sway <clears throat> over everything that goes on in the federal district. Uh, and since 1874, uh, the city had been ruled directly by Congress through its DC committees, but also by what Congress created, essentially created a governance system that was run by three presidentially appointed commissioners. Uh, and those three presidentially appointed commissioners were all white, were all men, uh, well into the uh, mid 20th century. Uh, and then the people who really kind of ran things but were less prominent and, and weren't, weren't uh, as Johnny on the spot as them were the members of the congressional committees. Uh, a disproportionate uh, number of whom were invariably Southerners. <clears throat> uh, in fact, some of them were, were some of the most uh, retrograde segregationists in the entire Congress. Theodore Bilbo from Mississippi, uh, who gets the gavel to the Senate District Committee uh, right after World War II. Um, and thankfully, he was, he was only there for a short time uh, before he passed. Uh, but he just said, look, it, this is a guy who had, for much of his career, introduced a, a deportation to Africa bill. Uh, for the, the, the country's African-American population. Uh, but he just said to his constituents back home, remember he's from Mississippi, um, you know, I got the chairmanship of this committee because I wanted to keep D.C. segregated, right? Like that's my purpose here. Uh, and so this gives you an idea of how the city is being run, at least when it comes to uh, the uh, significant number of its residents who are African-American during this period. Um, <clears throat> Yet following World War II, federal officials desperate to distinguish themselves from Moscow in the emerging Cold War broke ranks with segregationists in Congress and began to back African-Americans' quest for civil rights. Working through the courts, they outlawed restrictive covenants, which had blanketed much of the city uh, when developers put them on houses up this way, as well as in my neighborhood in Shepherd Park. One of the first things I noticed when I bought my house, which was built in 1927, is that it banned Negroes, Persians, and Jews. Uh, from ever owning that property. And I chuckled to myself uh, uh, because things had changed. Uh, but that was how much of the area above the old city had been segregated. Uh, further south, where the houses had been built before restrictive covenants existed in the late 19th century, early 20th century, what people did is they got together into, through their block associations or their civic associations, and they just asked everyone to sign a, a covenant which they then put on their neighborhoods, right? Uh, so they sort of backfilled covenants downward towards the black population so they could create a wall so it couldn't move northward. Um, and essentially, uh, the federal government, uh, working with black uh, lawyers in the city, uh, takes this case to the Supreme Court and makes them uh, unenforceable in 1948. Um, they also attacked segregated public accommodations and the dual school system in the early 1950s. Meanwhile, federal agency heads slowly desegregated things like uh, the federal agencies themselves, uh, which Wilson had helped to segregate, and federal parks. Now, convinced that the federal government would not protect segregation, many white DC residents left for the still segregated suburbs of Maryland and Virginia. More than 170,000 moved between 1950 and 1960, and another 130,000 left 
the following decade. I think many of us think that, that much of the white population leaves after the riot of 1968, but you can see that a solid quarter million had already left before the riots even begin. <clears throat> Fearful that this white flight would resegregate the city, an interracial group of Manor Park, Brightwood, and Shepherd Park, and Tacoma residents created Neighbors Incorporated in 1958. The group's focus was to stem white flight, and it worked to do so by convincing white residents not to move out of the city. Uh, it also, in those neighborhoods that were lightly integrating, like the ones that I just mentioned, uh, tried to find a way to create interracial dialogue. Uh, and so what they would do is that they'd have picnics where they'd get black and white families together. They'd have art shows. Uh, and they'd advertise the sort of the benefits of living in an interracial community. They were wildly successful. I mean, Bobby Kennedy comes up and lauds their activities. The Washington Post uh, says they've done wonderful things. They've got these beautiful uh, photo spreads of their art shows, which were actually great cultural uh, attractions. Uh, it's a really impressive organization. Uh, and in places like Tacoma and Shepherd Park, they are roughly able to stem white flight. Uh, but in the neighborhoods a little bit further south that were a little less expensive, where African Americans who had a, a little less money, a lot less money than their white neighbors, had access to those homes, uh, white flight continued to pace, uh, and Shepherd Park essentially pulls out of those neighborhoods by the late 1960s because they, they've already flipped, they've, re they've uh, segregated. Um, and what I think this story uh, shows is that people of goodwill who want to clean up the mess of segregation, a mess that is not simply pulling people apart, making it hard for them to talk to each other, creating hard feelings, but also creating fundamentally different um, needs. Uh, in other words, African Americans didn't have access to segregated houses, uh, segregated suburbs. They needed housing. And so when Marvin Kaplan, who's the, the head of Neighbors Inc., would go to some of his black neighbors and say, the way that we keep this neighborhood integrated is to make sure that white people who live here don't leave. Some of his black neighbors would say, I don't care if they leave. I need access to housing. My buddies from Howard need access to housing. And we can't, we can't shop across the line. We can only shop here. And here you're trying to reduce that, that source of housing. It doesn't make sense to us, right? We'd rather the place resegregate and we have a nice place to live. Right? Uh, and, so, and so it shows, I think, how difficult it is to clean up the mess of early 20th century segregation. And ultimately, um, uh, even Marvin Kaplan, who, who publicly agonized about you know, this, this effort to create a uh, integrated neighborhood, largely because he had three children. Uh, and his oldest daughter went to Roosevelt. And the schools uh, resegregated far faster than the neighborhoods, I'm sure some of you might remember. Uh, and so his daughter you know, went to Roosevelt. I think she graduated in 68. Um, and she's just like, Dad, you can't, you can't have my, my two younger siblings go through this. M emotions are too raw in the hallways. Um, the, the city is in a remarkably bad state. Uh, this can't happen. You know, I mean, you know, her senior year is the riot year, right? Like, you know, she's, she's marching towards graduation, and then April hits. Um, and, and he finally pulled his kids. Uh, uh, out of uh, Paul and Roosevelt, and they headed across the park, and so his kids went to Deal, I think, and then Wilson. Um, but, but, you know, this was the struggle that he faced as an individual trying to figure out how to, and, and part of a neighborhood organization trying to figure out how to clean up this mess. Okay, last uh, story. 
And in this one, I, I don't have a title. I'm just gonna, the, the, the point of it is that activists have to remain in constant and often difficult dialogue to build the coalition that help us to clean up this mess. And, and Neighbors Inc. did a admirable job, but ultimately I think they admitted a bit of defeat. Although in my neighborhood, they did create a successful integrated neighborhood in Shepherd Park. Um, in 1956, Congress passed the Highway Act, which provided 90% federal funding for all highway construction. States gladly took the money and proceeded to pour enough concrete to reach the moon and back. That's, that's, that's an actual, you could literally do a, a, a sidewalk to the moon and back based on the concrete that goes into the interstate highway system. Uh, in most American cities, the highways were geared toward getting white commuters from their suburban homes to downtown jobs and shopping quickly and efficiently. Conversely, conversely, highway planners made absolutely no provision for the black residents confined to the cities. In fact, they often planned to plow the highways straight through black neighborhoods. DC was no exception. In 1959, the National Capital Planning Commission released a highway plan for the city. And I don't know if any of you have ever seen this map, but it is terrifying, absolutely terrifying. The map included an outer loop, which was in fact later built, called the Beltway, and that ringed the city but it also included an intermediate loop of parkways and an inner loop that traversed downtown. And so we would literally have had three circular highways, one after the other, right? Kind of like Houston. Uh, but they would have been, two of them would have been inside the city limits. <clears throat> Connecting all of these highways would have been three trunk lines, one through Anacostia, which eventually got built, Another one roughly going straight up Georgia Avenue and along the railroad tracks, uh, which got built all the way up to New York Avenue. You all might wonder why you're, when you're driving on the highway from Virginia, you just dead end on New York Avenue. I'll tell you why in a second. Um, and then there was supposed to be another one that went up the west side of the city, roughly along Wisconsin Avenue, and that one did not get built at all. Um, <clears throat> When well-to-do white residents of Cleveland Park saw that one of the radio, hi radio highways was gonna go dead through their neighborhood, they used their connections to, to members of Congress. Many of them worked at powerful law firms like Covington and Burling, and they also knew members of the press. In fact, many of members of Congress and members of press actually lived in the area, parts of Georgetown all the way up. Uh, and so they just, they made some calls. You know, they sat down over dinner and they killed it. And one could not blame them for trying to protect their neighborhood. The black neighborhoods along Georgia Avenue uh, saw, noticed that they had a similar problem, that in fact the highway was going to come through their area. And at this point, the highway looks like it's gonna displace, it's gonna destroy about 5,400 homes, the, the, the two lines, uh, displace about 20,000 people, right? Um, but unlike uh, the residents in the Cleveland Park area, most of the residents of Shaw going up through Columbia Heights uh, did not have the types of connections that they did. Uh, and when they asked to have the line killed, uh, they were told very firmly, no. Um, in fact, uh, construction began on 395 downtown uh, and you started to see houses getting boarded up in Lower Shaw. Uh, uh, some of the churches that in fact the highway goes around right at New York uh, Avenue Bible Way uh, had to beg Hubert Humphrey directly uh, if he would uh, make sure that the highway doesn't plow through their congregation. And in fact, he said, sure, we'll just bend it around the back of uh, the church. And that's literally called the Bible Way Bend uh, because of that agreement. Uh, but unlike the bishop, uh, uh, the bishop down at Bible Way, most folks didn't have that type of access. And so this thing was going to go dead through Shaw. 
Excuse me. And it was around this time that Sammy Abbott, a graphic designer and rabble rouser who lived in Tacoma Park, Maryland, you probably heard of him, he later became mayor of Tacoma Park, Maryland, realized that the, the, um, the North Central Freeway, the one that was coming through Shaw, was actually going to go through his front yard. Uh, his wife, Ruth, was sitting with him one day looking at the map, and she's like, Sammy, that's our house. Um, now, recognizing that he could only fight the highway if he worked with his black neighbors to the south, he recruited the black power activist Reginald Booker into an organization uh, that he founded called the Emergency Committee on the Transportation Crisis, ECTC, uh, which Chris always reminds me is a garbage um, uh, acronym. They really could have done a better job. Um, together, they built a broad coalition that demanded dramatic reduction of the highway plan and that lawmakers shift the money they saved to building a subway. For nearly a decade, they fought federal lawmakers uh, and the business community, which was all in for the highways, I should point out, the Post, uh, the, the Board of Trade, etc. And along the way, they roped in the affluent Cleveland Park residents who had opposed the West Side Highway to help them with a lawsuit. And so they built this really remarkable <laughs> citywide, cross-class, cross-race, uh, cross-regional coalition. Uh, and they fought this federal government and the appointed city government to a standstill, and I should just, their tactics were absurd. I mean, you know, Sammy Abbott, for those of you who know him, he's, he's sort of this, this, this um, uh, short, balding uh, man with dark glasses, a very prominent nose, he's a Syrian Christian, and, you know, he was just angry. I mean, he just appeared to be angry. So there's one um, uh, appointed council hearing where, you know, we have to remember that the council at this point is appointed by the president, uh, and they're getting tremendous pressure from Congress and from the president to move the highway plan forward, and so they vote it through because they have no choice. Um, and Sammy Abbott just throws a, an ashtray at them during a council hearing. Uh, the Washington Post says it devolves into a melee. Um, and you have Sammy Abbott and all these black power activists in, in dark black glasses and afros and a couple of students from you know, some of the, the schools over on the... Uh, West Side, you would see them shouting and standing on chairs, and it, it really does sort of devolve into a fight. At the same time, uh, some of the people that they had recruited from uh, the Cleveland Park area are filing these really well-done lawsuits. I mean, these are people that work at Covington and Burling during the day, right? Uh, and so they're filing these lawsuits against the highway. And so all of it kind of comes together and just wears the federal government and the city government uh, down. <clears throat> and by the mid-1970s, uh, city government finally gives up. Uh, and it, it, of course, helps that you have a burgeoning environmental movement, all of these other things. Uh, and DC today has fewer miles of highway per capita than most other major American cities. It also has really bad traffic, uh, <laughs> but you know, you gotta give some to get some, right? Um, let me end with this. Uh, we end Chocolate City in 19, with a 1934 poem by uh, one-time DC resident Langston Hughes uh, entitled History. And I, I actually learned this poem when I was 14 years old uh, uh, during Black History Month uh, at, at City College High School in Baltimore. Uh, and it goes this way, the past has been a mint of blood and sorrow that must not be true of tomorrow. Um, and in this poem, Hughes considers history as a vehicle for cultivating prudence. Uh, I'll explain how we ended up reading it by just uh, quoting the last paragraph of the book itself. The history of the nation's capital is not simply what Langston Hughes called a mint of blood and sorrow. Since the city's inception, men and women of conscience have struggled to dismantle the systems of racial inequality and mistrust that still haunt our nation. Theirs is a story not of blame and resignation, but of action and resilience, 
of working to ensure that Washington's tortured racial past must not be true of tomorrow. We hope that this book will inspire Washingtonians to take up the challenge of black and white abolitionists, of former slaves and radical Republicans, of civil rights and home rule activists, of freeway protesters and cooperative organizers, to build a more just, egalitarian, and democratic nation's capital. <clears throat> people of good, and that, that's the end of the book. Um, now, people of goodwill have struggled mightily on the streets of this very city to breathe life into American democracy. Their efforts to build bridges, or in the case of ECTC, to stop the building of bridges, stand as an inspiration and a blueprint for us, and we hope, after you read the book, for you as well. Thank you. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Uh, interested. Um, I'm going to start with the privilege of the first question. Um, Mr. President Wilson has been on my mind these past couple of years mm -hmm. of, of all the things that can have uh, uh, been brought up in, in terms of uh, America's hopeful waking up or moving towards waking up uh, is President Wilson and, of course, never having heard growing up about the atrocities that he did in his administration. Uh, but then going to Princeton Seminary and walking by the Woodrow Wilson yeah. pol politics. Uh, we have at least Bill Hoffman, if he's not here anymore. Any other grads here from the Wilson School? Yeah, some other. So, some. Right. So, so, so he's Presbyterian, and he's got a stained glass window in the back of our church. Uh, so, in the midst of, of conversations about monuments and and pictures. Uh, thinking about um, how have historians seen, you know, how, how does one handle that? I know, I know that's not your, always your job to proscribe the future, but to think about um, what do you do with the Wilsons and the stained glass windows? Yeah. So, so you know, of, of course, thank you. It's a, it's a great question. It's a tough question. Um, so, you know, the, the larger debate about uh, monuments, Confederate monuments, uh, stained glass window at Yale University in one of their one of their dorms, uh, where my both my grandfathers were janitors, and my father was a student. Um, I think that there's there's a push among many historians and, and among sort of many activists who who began some of this work to attack those symbols as a precursor to action. Mm -hmm. And so the idea is uh, to make people conscious of their history. And you, and you can see this with the Equal Justice Institute's uh, lynching museum as well. Mm -hmm. uh, they want people to be conscious of our racial past as a spur to correcting it, right? Uh, and so the, the, it's, it's, it's the first step in a process as, many of those, as far as many of those people are concerned. Um, I think in the public debate that we've had about these monuments, um, it's been shrunk down to the process, mm. right? So get rid of the monuments. That'll be good. And I think in and of itself, that feels much less impressive to me as a historian. Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't write the book because I just wanted people to read it and say, wow, terrible, and then put it down and go back to life as normal. I mean, we, we, we wrote the book so that folks would say, oh, terrible, we should correct this. Or, or, or this, this, this gives me uh, blueprints for how to correct this. 
right? So it's a spur to activism. And, I, I, and so when I, when I look at the public conversation about these monuments, because I, I do think in many cases they should be removed and put in a museum. I mean, I, I think it's important that we document our white supremacist past um, and present. <laughs> um, but I think you know, documentation is something for books and museums. I think that stained glass windows are places for the saints, uh, uh, for founders of churches. Um, pedestals in the middle of traffic circles are for people that we venerate and that we hope to emulate. Um, and so when you have you know, people like Nathan Bedford Forrest in Memphis, founding member of the Ku Klux Klan, uh, documented uh, um, a Confederate general who committed a massacre against black Union troops because he saw them as slaves in rebellion mm. uh, at Fort Pillow. Uh, when, when you have people like that on pedestals, I think they should be knocked down. And when I saw students drag down Silent Sam at UNC, I was kind of happy, I can't lie. Um, but I think that has to be the first step because if it's just that, then it just feels like, just, it feels like vandalism. Uh, but if, it is, if it's part of a process, it feels much more productive to me. Any other questions? Well, yes, ma'am. Just to, and we are re recording this and share with our friends, so just to enhance the microphone. <laughs> uh, thank you. You mentioned Langston Hughes at the yes. end. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about uh, the, how uh, the black community in D.C. became an incubator of such extraordinary uh, 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 mm. writers. and sure. uh, and how they played a role in building bridges? Mm-hmm, well, that's an excellent question. Um, so, first things first, the, 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 you, you get people like uh, Langston Hughes, who of course is a, is a relative of John Mercer Langston, one of the Reconstruction uh, politicos uh, who dominated black politics in, in Washington, D.C. during the 1860s and 70s. Um, I think he was health commissioner for, for a time. Um, and. So, so part of that is that you know, pretty impressive people typically come from pretty impressive families. Uh, the families are just able to give, and it's, it's not genes, right? It's just that families are able to give people access to resources to develop their natural talents, right? Uh, if you're a brilliant person born into a poor family, you have a lower likelihood of being able to prove yourself like Langston Hughes than if you're just as brilliant born into a well-to-do family. Um, and so Washington, D.C. just has a critical mass in the late 19th century of very well-to-do African-American families with resources and access. Um, we have to remember that not just the federal government gives you know, jobs and access to African-Americans in the late 19th century through Howard, through, these, uh, through, the, through the school system, but things like the Carnegie Library, which opens up in 1903 uh, downtown, which is our city's main library, uh, you know, still sits at Mount Vernon Square. Uh, was was integrated or it was desegregated. I mean, you, you know, you, you didn't have any black folks working in the stacks. It, it was almost all dominated by, by white um, librarians. Um, but black folks could just go in there and get access to the materials. And it, the reason for this is actually quite perverse. Uh, you know, uh, Carnegie was a eugenicist. Uh, and, you know, he believed that, uh, you know, you should give working class people access to the to ladders of opportunity. And if they didn't climb up them, good. They, they should remain in the gutter where they belong. Um, or die off, right? Because he was a eugenicist. Um, but he was willing to extend that opportunity to African Americans. If y'all can prove yourselves by, by using this library to become great, great men and women, fine, right? 
Um, and so, so his sort of odd way of approaching uh, you know, sort of public education, for lack of a, a better um, a descriptor, um, grants access to African-Americans. And so you get all these, this possibility, all these ladders to success for African-Americans in the city. And we have to remember that you, the people that are able to really latch onto them are, are you know, a minority of the black population, 10, 20 percent. Um, but they have these things. They also just build their own societies. I mean, some of the, the first African-American learned society uh, is created by Alexander Crummel in, in uh, not Ladroit Park, it's in Shaw, and then he moves over towards Ladroit Park. Um, and so there are these institutions that African-Americans are able to come through, uh, and Langston Hughes certainly does. Um, Elaine Locke, of course, the person who gives us uh, the name for the New Negro Renaissance of the 1920s, which we center on New York, comes from Washington, D.C. He was a professor at Howard University of Sociology. Uh, and if you look at his anthology, which is called The New Negro, which announces the Harlem Renaissance uh, and the New Negro Renaissance in New York, half of the writers are from Washington, D.C. And they're primarily connected to Howard University. Um, and so that is a product of the wealth that was built up in the late 19th century, quite explicitly. Um, as, that, as all of those benefits are eroded in the early uh, 20th century, and those benefits open up to African Americans in places like New York and Chicago, uh, they overtake DC as these centers of black learning and, and black cultural productivity. Other questions? Yeah, Grace. This is a story, not a commentary or a question. And I had a childhood friend who in 1968 bought a house on Newton Street in Mount Pleasant. Mm -hmm. Newton Street at that time was all black. Mm -hmm. She was the only white family on that street. In, 19 in 1971, we went and stayed with her and I said to myself, I can't, this is, this, I can't do this. I can't do what she's doing. Mm -hmm. um, in 19, a few years ago, we went to see her daughter who lived, was living in the house. The whole yeah. block is white. The next door neighbor is the only black family. Yeah, yeah. We're living on this side of the park. By the way, she sent her children to a Montessori school, not the... Uh, the city school, which mm -hmm. was half a block away from where she was. Mm -hmm. Well, so th there, there's actually a great backstory to that. Uh, there's a, a couple, but I'll, I'll stick with one. Um, and that is that the first article that Chris and I ever co-wrote was called Not Gone, Not Forgotten, uh, Battling Over History in a Gentrifying DC. And we wrote that article, I think, in 2012. We had begun writing Chocolate City in 2011. And those are really important dates for the production of, of historical text, right? Because 2011 is the year that the, the census announced that DC, for the first time since 1957, had lost its black majority. And it just so happened um, that all around the city, DC Humanities and a couple of other institutions were doing all of these uh, panels about gentrification. And they got really raucous. I mean, this is, this is weird, right? Because it's DC Humanities, right? And, and so it's, you know, it's supposed to be a relatively sleepy occasion. Mm. 
Um, you know, they're typically not people fighting, maybe even cursing at each other. And that was what was happening, right? Um, and of course, the folks, a lot of folks were rubbed raw by the way that the city was changing. Um, what many of them didn't know, and what we wanted to insert into that conversation, was that this is a really old story, and we can learn from what we called the previous waves of gentrification that had washed across the city over the course of the 20th century. And so, you know, we wrote up this article, and then it, it, it actually ended up becoming a, a scholarly article that we put in an, in an anthology called Capital Dilemma. And we found that, you know, the, the first major burst of what at the time was called private revitalization. Gentrification doesn't become a, a, a well-used word in the United States until the, the mid to late 1970s. We borrow it from the British. Um, we found that there was a, an initial wave in Georgetown in the 20s and 30s. Uh, Georgetown was a working class community. It was about 30% African American, a lot of working class uh, Irish in, in the alleys alongside African Americans in that community. And, you know, so the tweed, the, the tweed wearing set from the State Department and the Smithsonian, and, and, so, and this is still when we had so, sort of a, you know, a class, you know, like a class politics to our society, right? Um, so a lot of the people from the Ivies uh, that were at State and at the Smithsonian um, said, God, that's a, that's a quaint old port, port village hmm. Georgetown is, and it's shabby, but I can see its future, right? And they began to move in uh, and fix up houses. Um, and over time, they displaced almost all of those working class people. Uh, and by the time that John F. Kennedy left his Georgetown uh, row house to go to the inauguration, it's a wrap. The, the entire neighborhood has fundamentally changed, right? So it's a 30 year period. Well, we found that when people realized that they couldn't flip houses anymore in Georgetown, they moved on to Foggy Bottom. And then after Foggy Bottom to Capitol Hill, and this is in the, the 40s and 50s, right? Uh, and then there's a huge burst of gentrification in the late 60s and 70s. Um, and this one's a, a bit more complicated because it's, a lot of it is, you know, sort of the, the children of the counterculture who don't, who sort of see the suburbs of their parents as culturally dead. Uh, and so they want to head back into the city, right? Uh, and so they go to places like Columbia Heights, um, um, uh, Mount Pleasant, and, and what's interesting is that they do not sort of wash out the neighborhoods. They don't flip them into, into high-class enclaves uh, because that, that wave kind of crests around the late 70s and then cracking crime hit and it stalls out. And Brett Williams, who's a, an anthropologist over at American University, actually wrote a book called Stall Gentrification, which is about Mount Pleasant uh, and how in the 70s and early 80s, you have this bizarre, crazy quilt of people who uh, make $200,000 living right next to a janitor and a school teacher and uh, a Salvadoran family who's on the front end of that migration into the city. Um, and then, of course, this latest wave of gentrification ends up sort of wiping out that diversity in many of these neighborhoods where gentrification had stalled, right? Um, and so we, we basically wrote this article up, threw it out there, and said, you know, you guys are talking about this the wrong way. Um, and it's, it's because of that very complicated history. Um, and oddly enough, it's, it's led by people with really good intentions. I mean, you know, one of them, uh, and I'll say, I'll say this and I'll stop because I go on forever about this. Um, one of your, your friend's neighbors was a woman by the name of Marie Nahikian. Uh, many of you might remember her as the founder of the Adams Morgan organization. And she was a gentrifier. She was a young woman who came to the city to work for a professional organization. 
She used to hang out at Potter's house to do brunches with local neighborhood activists. And they were looking around, they're saying, you know, all of our poor neighbors, black, white, Latino, are getting pushed out by flippers, by developers. Um, and so they began at that point to organize against displacement, saying that poor people had a right to the city. And there's a great um, uh, uh, exhibit at the Smithsonian Anacostia Museum, which we'll probably all be able to see once the government opens back up in a year. Um, <laughs> But, but it's called a right to the city, based on that phrase that they, they rallied around. Um, and they made a powerful effort to reserve for uh, poor people access to the city. Uh, and so DC, by the late 1970s, has an anti-flipping tax. Uh, it has, it, the city council has essentially said, no more condo conversions. Like, we're not doing it until we can figure out a way to do this without displacing huge numbers of poor people. Um, and so we get some of the strongest uh, rent control laws in the country because of that neighborhood-based movement. It starts with a gentrifier, right, Marie Nahikian. And she hooks up with people like Frank Smith, our former city councilman who used to be in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, right? And so, so you know, you have um, these remarkable sort of cross-racial, cross-class uh, coalitions that I didn't even get to talk about that, that are transforming the city in the 70s as well. And, and you, can, you end up experiencing part of that, why they came about and what, you know, what they were fighting against uh, in, in Mount Pleasant. It's way too long an answer, sorry. Yes, sir. Uh, oh, just uh, quickly, I, uh, I was in, you talked about the summary of uh, all this highway program that was uh, going on, the planning for it mm -hmm. in the late 50s and 60s. I was in the middle of this. Mm. That was part of my doings. In fact, I was convicted, uh, I, you know, that was my kind of upbringing in the highway planning field. Mm. Across the nation, every city yes. wanted to have highways and freeways right after the war, that's mm -hmm. what the people were demanding. They had bought new cars and they wanted access to the freeways. Yes. Anyhow, it was very difficult for you to summarize that in the short time you had to do that. And yeah. I would just want to tell you, I hadn't heard of Sammy Abbott for 20, 20 years. <laughs> but I can tell you when he was active, I was dealing with him at uh, public hearings in and out all the time. I'm sure. But let me tell you one thing. If it hadn't been for all the planning we did, during that time to have the Northeast Freeway, the North Central and the Northwest and the, the uh, uh, Three Sisters Bridge and on mm -hmm. and on and on and on. Mm -hmm. If it hadn't been for that, we wouldn't have a subway today. Right. right. What happened a few years ago, and I knew the guy who actually wrote the uh, memo to get that money that was allocated to district for its freeway construction to be transferred to, the, to Metro. It was, mm -hmm. as I recall, about $900 million. Yeah. Is a big boost. It had not been for all the silliness and the kind of stuff in retrospect we were doing. Mm -hmm. I think we've uh, gained by the whole process. Oh, I, 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 w I wish you put one more track in Metro, but otherwise, yes. <laughs> uh. <laughs> we got, I guess, one quick announcement. Yeah, just a quick announcement. First, I wanted to thank you very much for your talk and thank your you. book, which is terrific. I suggest that everybody buy several copies. It was my holiday gift to my entire family this year. Thank you. Um, my name is Judith Ingram. I'm a Wilson parent, Wilson High School parent, and I wanted to make sure that everybody here is invited, uh, knows about an event that's coming up on February 12th at 7 p.m. Yes. We're discussing whether it's time to change the name of Woodrow Wilson High School. Uh, we have seven experts, uh, some historians of uh, Wilson, um, the Wilson presidency, historians about, of Reno City, the community right across the street from Wilson, which mm -hmm. was decimated. Um, 
and we have the descendant of a family whose farm was seized by eminent domain to make way for Lafayette Elementary School, as mm. we're speaking as well. So uh, we think it's going to be a great evening, and we welcome you all. Yeah. Uh, and and, and what, what Judith didn't mention uh, is that uh, Eric Yellen, who's, who's easily the foremost historian of, of this moment in DC's history and, and of Woodrow Wilson's racial politics, will be on the panel. Uh, and so it's, it's absolutely not to be missed. I owe you an email, but I absolutely will be there in the audience. Uh, so, so thank you. It's wonderful. <laughs> Well, and we'll get that information and try to spread that out more electronically. Uh, Dr. Musgrove, thank you so much for uh, you. your time. I hope it does inspire us to keep your action. Appreciate it. <laughs>